Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. Today on The Breakdown, she's perhaps the most renowned environmental attorney in California, responsible for the state's decades-long focus on reducing air pollution and fighting climate change. Mary Nichols will be our guest today. That's right. Mary Nichols really is a giant in the world of environmental regulation. She served under Governor Jerry Brown in the 1970s and again when he returned to the governor's office. She was in line to head the EPA under President Biden. That didn't work out, and we'll talk with her a little bit about that and all the work she's done on behalf of clean air and much more, Marisa. But first, I think you have to say that we have officially kicked off the campaign for governor, the recall campaign this week with John Cox, the Republican, bringing a live brown bear and then complaining when the media talked about only that and not not his detailed policy (laughs) positions. We've kicked off the circus with a bear and all, right? I mean, really, California politics at its best. Whether you like it or not, just to bring it it back to Newsom. No, I mean, yeah, so I guess let's talk about the bear first. Um, We did not see the bear in person, although I saw all the videos from my colleagues up in Sacramento and was kind of terrified by the whole thing. Like... I've watched those documentaries. These bears are nice until they're not. It it Um, never ends well. Seems like. Risk, but yeah, I mean, it was funny. Guy Marzarati, our colleague, was at the next news conference that the bear did not attend, and apparently Cox was complaining that the bear got so much attention, which I think was kind of the point, right? And then he didn't bring the bear to the then he didn't bring the bear to the next stop at Tesla, and there was no reporters, no no media showed up. So I don't know. You got to just maybe keep them guessing as to when the bear is going to show up. Um, But But also, yes, more about the bear. Sure. Well, no, more just like this. what your thoughts are on this this approach he's taking. So he's he's trying to paint Newsom as the beauty. He t- keeps calling him pretty boy and himself as the beast. And it seems yeah, it, it, a little forced. It's a little, it's a lot forced. Um, I, you know, it, it's like, okay, the, the whole advertising is come meet the beast. Well, that's the bear. But <laughs> no, is he, it's so supposed is he to be the John. Beast? It's, he, yeah. he, but he just doesn't look like a beast with the starched white shirt buttoned down. It's just, I'm sorry. It just has to be rethought, uh. I think. Um, and then... Uh, Caitlyn Jenner was on with uh, that hard-hitting journalist Sean Hannity last night on Fox at 6 o'clock, a sit-down in her airplane 
hangar. Oh, we it was actually at up. the hangar. I believe it was at the hangar, yeah. Or somewhere yeah. nearby. Very, very nearby. And, uh, in fact, she offered at the end to take uh, Hannity for a ride on the plane. Not sure that happened. He didn't seem too into that. Yeah. Well, after that <laughs> interview, I would think he'd need a cocktail uh, probably somewhere. It was, you know, this is this is complicated. I mean, it's being governor and running for governor is tough in a state like California, any state, really. It's You have to know what you're talking about and what you stand for. You have to, and, and I, it clearly, and I, I have to say, Arnold Schwarzenegger probably didn't quite have that down when he ran. They had to pull him off the media circuit for a little bit to make sure he knew what he was going to say when he was asked tough questions. And last night, Caitlyn Jenner just clearly really didn't have any substantive answers, except when she talked about her personal journey. Right. I thought that was really moving. Uh, but other than that, water, immigration, ice. Fires. Fires. I mean, it was all kind of generalities and anecdotes. And also, like... A couple times, including around trans issues, where she sort of promised to talk about it later, didn't seem ready to. I know last weekend had made some comments about girls and, and, and trans kids in sports and almost didn't want to address that. I mean, I think it is a tightrope because, you know, her whole campaign is sort of focused on this idea of being a compassionate conservative, which is not really the direction like Sean Hannity's show goes most nights, right? And and so I think that there's this challenge both in selling that case to Californians who might not, you know, just numbers-wise, there's not as many Republicans and conservatives as there are maybe more liberals and progressives, um, and then also trying to get that you know, hit that balance to try to get the sort of establishment behind her. But what struck me, Scott, and I didn't, I know you watched every second of it. I I, 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 I hit the highlights after I gave my kids dinner. <laughs> On my Twitter but, feed. <laughs> but was like how many times both she and at one point Sean Hannity sort of just showed their privilege. I mean, the hangar part, right, where she's talking about one of her neighbors in the airplane hangar moving out of state because of seeing the homeless people. Tired um, of seeing the homeless. Yeah. You know, yeah. Offering, I mean, and it's just, I mean, maybe that doesn't matter. We have had very wealthy governors before. Newsom obviously has more money than most of us, I think. But like, I, I do think that some of this is just, to your point, the media training around how to talk and how to be empathetic. And then, yeah, just the litany of really like deep understanding of policy yeah. that you were going to need eventually. Right. And if you think back, Ronald Reagan, he was an actor. People made fun. Bonzo, you know, goes to Hollywood and all that stuff. But he was on the politics circuit for quite a long time before he ran for governor. He knew what he stood for. Yeah. And he convinced the voters that he was the guy to run the state. Arnold Schwarzenegger had worked on, you know, ballot measure, uh, one ballot measure anyway, uh, for kindergarten, expanding, you know, preschool stuff. We had so the Kennedy family. The Kennedy he... family. Right. Yeah. Thanksgiving dinners. Right. You got to. Yeah. And I think he also came in with a really sharp message around the sort of and, and we can talk about whether it worked out, but the, you know, repealing the car tax and these things, things that people specific policy areas. I think what we're seeing so far is a lot of, you know, understandably, since it's a recall, kind of throwing mud at Newsom. Um, but of course, you know, we're going to be interested to see what solutions are put out as well. Yeah. And, you know, it was interesting too uh, watching Hannity. I mean, you know, Fox News, if you watch it, it's sanctuary cities, sanctuary state, undocumented, illegal aliens, all that stuff. And and Jenner really wouldn't go for that. But, um, you know, I don't know. It would be interesting to see what the ratings were. But uh, I'm not sure she gained a lot of uh, donors or supporters based on that appearance last well, night. Well, 
the other thing um, I did want to bring up was the PSA put out by uh, the last four governors of California, right? Four. Five. Oh yes, yes. Real quick, yeah. To to encourage everybody to get vaccinated, and it was pretty funny. It starts off with Arnold. All all of the former governors living were in it, uh, and uh, they begin by talking about all the things they miss and uh, that they'll be able to do now that they're vaccinated. And Gray Davis says hugs, and Jerry Brown says theme parks. And it just, you know, the image of Jerry Brown at, you know, Knott's Berry Farm. Uh, I just couldn't get that out of my head after I saw that video. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm sure our guests will be able to discuss how often Jerry Brown goes to Disneyland. And, yes, that is a brilliant uh, yeah. transition. That is a brilliant transition. <laughs> All right. Before I, we go to a, yeah. what? Yes, real quick. Oh, no. Just that I think it was smart of them to lead with Arnold on that one. Yeah, yes. Draw them in. Exactly camel's nose under the tent. All right, before we go to a break, a reminder that you can find lots more of KQED's politics coverage and analysis in our weekly political breakdown newsletter. You can sign up at kqed.org slash political breakdown. All right, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we'll be joined by environmental rock star Mary Nichols. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Randa Dirfatah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos. And today we're delighted to have with us a woman who has played a huge role in shaping California's environmental policies from cleaning up air pollution to cap and trade and climate change. She's worked for five California governors, including both times Jerry Brown was governor. Please welcome Mary Nichols. Good to have you with us. Well, thank you very much. Can I comment about the bear? Oh, yeah, I'm so please. glad you want to do that. Yes. Okay, so I just want to say, you know, in the course of my career and when I worked for Gray Davis, which was five years, I wasn't an air regulator. I was in charge of California's wonderful natural resources as secretary for the resources agency. So the Department of Fish and Game was part of my um, jurisdiction there. They're now fish and wildlife, I'm happy to say. But Many of the most interesting issues that I was involved with during that five years involved bears. <laughs> and I don't know where they got this bear from, but um, the chances are pretty good that it wasn't supposed to be where it was for that press conference. Yeah, no, apparently the bear is a SAG after a member and is used oh, in Hollywood. Local well, local uh, connection there. Local bear us. makes good. Yeah, but nonetheless, your point is well taken. Your point... Your, 
because we have so many bears, you know, up in the hills. I, I live in Los Angeles, but, you know, up towards La Cunada and beyond, um, bears come down from the forest. There's a drought situation. They're attracted by people's swimming pools or by uh, garbage that people haven't properly gotten rid of. And um, they're, it's not good for them and it's not good for the people. Yeah, it was also no, a absolutely. Kodiak bear. I was, in, I thought it was interesting. I thought they might try to get like the California brown bear, but what do I know? Yeah. You know, <laughs> I don't, I don't <laughs> know if it was a local, <laughs> <laughs> local talent. Well, <laughs> yeah. So, Mary, we want to um, just start with kind of a big picture question because you've been on the front lines of the environmental movement for so long since the 1970s, and you know, over the span of 45 years, you know, there's been a lot of talk of dealing with climate change, lots of steps forward, some steps back, and I'm just wondering, do you? see this moment as being fundamentally different or is it just you know another swing of the pendulum no no we're in a major change period right now without a doubt i mean when you've got the chamber of commerce lobbying congress to take action on a jobs plan mainly on uh investments that are going to deal with climate change and are going to be supporting a transition away from petroleum away from oil and gas and in the direction of uh, all electric renewable world, um, you've you've achieved a, a, what they call an inflection point. It's a, definitely a real change. All right. Well, we're going to come back to the now, but uh, we, we do like to go back in time and talk about how folks got to where they are. Um, you grew up in Ithaca, New York, I believe, and your dad was an engineering professor at Cornell who actually became a politician. He ran for mayor and won. Um, so, I mean, was politics something that was a big part of your childhood or did that kind of come later? Well, one of my first memories is being taken by my parents to some uh, location, a school, a school basement, and being assigned a job of collating position papers. So I do believe that this was, in, you know, I, I was in it from a very early age. But my parents were not really into elective politics as much as they were into into issue politics. They both came from very strong progressive. Uh, they would have said socialist or even communist backgrounds um, from when they grew up. And so, um, you know, I grew up looking at the television and, you know, complaining about the news and, um, you know, and, and very involved in anti-war and pro-civil rights activities my my whole life. And did I read that you were, you refused to take part in an air raid drill during the uh, Cold War in school uh, because it was so you know, militaristic? I mean, tell, tell us about that and what happened to you when you did that? That was in the eighth grade and I was part of a little group of kids. We were all Cornell faculty brats, I guess, but <laughs> um, we also, you know, were, we wanted to do something of our own and we would get together on Sunday afternoons and, you know, talk about issues and plan actions of various kinds. And, and we were all traumatized as little kids in those days. Uh, there were air raid drills when I was in elementary school where, you know, this horrible loud siren would ring and you had to get under your desk. Um, out, out here, I guess they do that for earthquakes. But there, <laughs> you know, we did it because there might be an air raid and we had to be prepared. Uh, why getting under your desk is going to help you in that situation is a mystery. But anyway, we, we did it. Um, so in the eighth grade, there was supposed to be a community-wide operation 
and um, people were supposed to go home. The trans, you know, the buses weren't going to run, and um, the whole community was supposed to shut down. And so we vowed that we weren't going to do that. And our little group walked out of school down to the main streets called State Street in Ithaca, and um, we just walked down the street and expecting something would happen somebody would notice but of course everybody else was indoors doing what they were supposed to be doing <laughs> there anyway and nobody paid this life <laughs> so that was maybe one of my early experiences of how how hard it is to get media attention <laughs> <laughs> or just get in trouble for something that you want to get in trouble for um exactly. <laughs> all right i'm going to skip forward in time a little bit you you end up going to cornell i believe for undergrad and then yale law school um and you and your husband came out here in the late 60s i believe what i mean at that point what did you see yourself doing what was your vibe were you were you a a commie socialist too a a hippie or were you like in more in the the yale law school crowd uh Oh, you think there's a difference between those two? <laughs> Fair point. <laughs> um, it was 1971, and my husband had a real job with a law firm, and I did not have a job. So I was uh, very confident that I would get something exciting and interesting in the public interest world to do. Uh, it was definitely not my goal to ever work for a corporate and you know corporate law organization uh, but this was really the dawn of public interest law and especially of environmental law and i was very lucky to have arrived just at the moment when la's first um environmental law firm called the center for law and the public interest was just getting ready to get started they'd gotten a grant from the ford foundation which put millions of dollars into this uh idea that the environment deserved uh, legal representation. And we had all these new environmental laws like the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act. We had CEQA, California Environmental Quality Act, and all of these things were, you know, just really becoming available as tools to use to try to stop bad things from happening. And so um, I was able to get myself hired as a um, law clerk because I hadn't even taken the California bar yet. Um, at the center and I became their air pollution lawyer because I was the kid and air pollution seemed like the most boring and most difficult of all the legal issues you could possibly get involved in and hard. So, <clears throat> so that's how I became an air pollution lawyer. So just uh, moving ahead a few years, uh, Jerry Brown is elected governor in 1974. The creation of the Air Resources Board happens, and the governor names you, I believe, to the board uh, as a member. Did you see right away like what the possibilities were and how powerful a body that could become? Yes, absolutely. Um, I, I, uh, I joined up with the board when Tom Quinn was the chair. Tom had been uh, Jerry Brown's campaign manager and uh, had a really fierce desire to do something about air pollution. He had grown up in L.A. Um, near Griffith Park in an area where you could look out and see how horrible the smog was. And he wanted to do something about it. And he was uh, very shrewd uh, about sort of how to 
how to find a place of a vantage point to do it from. And what he saw was that you had this agency, which kind of nobody paid that much attention to. It was working on trying to make cars cleaner, you know, coming up with ways to convince Detroit to build cleaner cars. So that was really all they were doing up until that point. Uh, and, he, you know, he looked at the statute and he could see that it had the potential to be a lot more powerful than that. But he needed a board uh, because it is a board. And so um, he went out and uh, recruited, basically, me to be the lawyer and uh, a Berkeley professor named Robert Sawyer, who was uh, one of the world's leading experts on combustion and actually uh, a Republican back in those days, but somebody who also thought Detroit could do a lot better than what they were sending us. So uh, the three of us were the Air Resources Board for the first few years of uh, Jerry Brown's time as governor, and we really... Uh, did a lot. I mean, we, we were very busy uh, doing things like requiring catalytic converters and um, getting lead out of gasoline and cracking down on the local air districts that weren't doing much in those days about pollution from oil refineries and power plants. So it was, uh, we took what had been quite a sleepy sort of backwater of an agency and it became something much more powerful and we had the governor's backing to do that, of course, uh, but uh, we we also incurred a lot of uh, opposition, as you can imagine. <laughs> I think that's a theme of your career, Mary. I, I want to remind our listeners, if they're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer, and we're talking with Mary Nichols, who until recently chaired the California Air Resources Board. Um, yeah, talk about that, because your first go around, I know there was like Hell's Angels protest, truckers lining blocks, and then you come back um, under Davis, as you mentioned earlier, as Natural Resources Secretary, but then came back to the Air Resources Board under Arnold Schwarzenegger. I can't say his name, apparently, um, <laughs> and really helped pioneer this cap and trade program. And I mean, everything around climate change is so controversial. Do you care about getting attacked like that? Like, is that has that bothered you or is it just kind of part of the job? Well, I don't enjoy being attacked at all. Um, but I do understand that the job of somebody who, you know, is handed the responsibility of running a major program of any kind ought to be looking more to be respected than to be uh, liked. Um, you know, uh, as, as long as my boss, whoever the governor is, feels like what I'm doing is uh, in the right direction and that, you know, more people are supportive than opposed, I guess uh, I'm okay with that. Uh, in the case of the cap and trade program, that was more painful because uh, it was so heavily politicized and it maybe in some ways it's kind of the beginning of, of some of the extremes of not being able to reach uh, compromise decisions in the environmental area. But in this case, it was more painful because by and large, the business community, even if they didn't like it, went along with it because they thought it was better than the alternatives that they might be facing. And it was our, um, it was our constituents on the left um, not the kind of mainstream environmental organizations, but, um, you know, some of the environmental justice groups, especially, 
uh, who who were uh, attacking us. So that yeah. was painful. You had worked for years with Democratic uh, uh, governors, uh, Gray Davis, you mentioned, as well as, of course, Jerry Brown. You worked, I think, for Bill Clinton, maybe at one point. You worked for Tom Bradley when he was running for governor in 1986. So when Arnold Schwarzenegger knocked on your door and said, uh, Mary Nichols, I'd like you to come work for me, did you have reservations? Uh, yes, I absolutely did. Um, I, I I threw myself into the job because I could see that we had this new statute, which had been passed, of course, with all Democratic votes, and that there was a need for somebody who could come in and implement that statute. And I knew that uh, Arnold had signed it and you know backed it. But he also uh, had made it very clear that he wanted a cap and trade program to be part of that uh, that whole effort. He didn't. He, it wasn't like he wanted to cut back on any of our other in, uh, environmental regulatory programs. I mean, he was in favor of a mandate for renewable electricity, and he supported the auto standards very strongly. But at the same time, he thought there should be a cap and trade program. He was intrigued about that. It was something that was already happening in Europe. Uh, the Brits had done it and the EU was doing it. And, you know, his interest in climate change was really kind of a global thing because he thinks in, in international terms. So... Um, when I took the job, I, I did, you know, sit down and have a meeting with him. And, you know, he kind of cross-examined me about whether I could support cap and trade. And I explained to him that my last governmental job had been in the Clinton administration, uh, where I was the head of the AIR program at US EPA. And one of the main things that we were doing at that point was uh, carrying out a cap and trade program called the acid rain trading program. It only applied to power plants, but it was a national program that was designed to bring down the sulfur that was causing acid lakes and rivers in the Northeast of the United States by getting all the coal-fired power plants that were upwind of there from the Midwest and the West uh, to, to clean up the pollution. And so um, I knew something about what it takes to actually design and run a successful cap and trade program. And that was certainly, you know, he was, he was very intrigued about that. And I was convinced, and I certainly, I feel like I was justified, yeah. that he genuinely sincere in his desire to make this program work. And, and, and you all did. I mean, California reached its goal of lowering our emissions to 1990 levels four years early. But at the top, you said that this is a moment to seize. And I'm curious, given, um, you know, cap and trade, like you said, was not what industry wanted, but it was more palpable than some of the other options on the table. What do you think the Biden administration should be doing now in terms of those trade-offs between being super aggressive and trying to kind of bring around, you know, bring along the politics? Sure. Well, I mean, so far, I think they're doing it just right. Of course, I think that partly because most of the executive orders and proposals that they put out are really based on what's happening in California right now. So I feel quite pleased to see that, you know, we intended to be a model. And in most respects, uh, we have been and, and are being looked to as a model. 
The only place where I think the, you know, there's a, a gap is in this question of do you need to put a price on carbon? And if so, is it through a tax or a tax and uh, a cap and tax or a tax and dividend or cap and trade or some you know variation on that? And that's the one thing that they're not talking about right now. Um, a lot of people think that eventually you have to have some mechanism for taxing carbon if you're going to get rid of um, petroleum, which, you know, currently pays for our roads and uh, other uh, everything else that comes out of the highway trust fund. Yeah. Um, you know, you've got to have to get the money from somewhere, even if you're not trying to use it as a way to yeah. actually get people to clean up. Mary, we're short on time, but I do want to ask you about your work with China. You're back working with uh, Jerry Brown on the California-China Climate Institute at UC Berkeley. You released a report today on the partnership between the two countries. You know, we're very familiar with what the implications of climate change are here in California, drought, wildfires, and so on. What is it in, in China? I mean, what, how do people there feel it? And if it's, if, if it's profound, is the government resistant still to doing what it needs to do to clean up its emissions? Well, actually, uh, China has maintained its strong commitment to um, being a leader in reducing emissions ever since, um, uh, you know, the president of the U.S. and the president of China met in Sunnylands, California, uh, a year or more before the Paris conference where, you know, the world at the time seemingly adopted the the goal of uh, getting to uh, no more than one and a half uh, degrees warming, uh, you know, by uh, by before 2050 at least. And um, I think that uh, the Chinese role in that was absolutely critical because they've now become the biggest emitter. Uh, we're responsible for having put more carbon into the atmosphere, but they are now emitting more every year than we are. And they very much want to be global leaders in many different respects, but this is one that they've decided they, they have to be. So uh, they have kept up their commitments to try to build more. They're still building more renewable electricity plants than anybody uh, in the world. They're not perfect by any means. They've got a lot of coal and they don't have any natural gas. So, you know, it's it's a tougher transition in many ways for them. But this institute and the report on getting to net zero is a joint project of Chinese and U.S. scholars. And I'm hoping that it's going to be um, a bestseller. All right. We'll awesome. see. Well, thank you so much, Mary Nichols, for your lifetime of work. I'm sure there's lots more to be done that you'll be working on in the years ahead. But thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. And that's going to do it for this edition of Political Breakdown, a production of KQED Public Radio. Our producer is Guy Marzarati. Our engineer is Katie McMurrin. KQED's team includes Holly Kernan, Ethan Tobin, Lindsay, Vinny Tong, and Erica Aguilar. I'm Marisa Lagos. You can follow me on Twitter at MLagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time. love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area, its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures, then you should check out the Bay Curious book. 
I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.